Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Word on the Hill podcast with the Lanky Guys. My name is Scott Powell. I am flying solo today. Father Peter is on a much-needed retreat this week. Uh, so please, if you would, in your kindness, please pray for him um, that he can be uh, spiritual re- spiritually refreshed during this time. Uh, but as it is, you're stuck with me flying solo today. We've had uh, kind of a string of reruns the last couple of weeks, which is uh, never the ideal, but you know, with Christmas and everything else going on, that was just what was necessary. And we've uh, definitely um, heard from a number of you how excited you are and anxious you are to hear uh, our voices in person again, or or I guess not in person, but just not from 2013. Um, So yeah, we're back. And it it seemed um, important on a day like today, which is a very strange day to be recording a podcast, um, to have something that's that's live, uh, to not uh, have a rerun, to not have something recycled. It's a it's a weird day, you guys. It is dark, uh, both in the physical sense. It's a little bit overcast here on on Thursday morning in Boulder, uh, and there's a weird spiritual overcast to our nation. Um, and I have zero interest in getting on a platform and telling you guys how to think and telling you what I think and all of my opinions about what we're seeing going on in our country. Um, Suffice it to say that there is a great darkness uh, and it's hard to know how to get out of it. But the thing that I love about the podcast that we do is this. Um, I don't consider this podcast really a platform for me or for Father Peter. Uh, And I, I personally find platforms to be rather dangerous things because the more I am worried and concerned about you listening to what I have to say and what I think and all of my opinions on things, uh, the bigger my head gets. That's just one of the struggles that I have as a person. Uh, And it also just makes things about me. Um, I think this is a danger that we're seeing uh, in a large way across our nation, probably our world, but we see it in a pretty acute way in our country. And Social media and everything else just gives everybody a platform to kind of spout out what they think about the world. And the reason I love this podcast, although I have many opinions and strong thoughts about many things that I think are all correct because I know myself and I know what I think, uh, that's not what this podcast is. And this podcast is not about what I think. It's about what the scriptures say. It's about what the Catholic liturgy and the wisdom of the church wants the church to be thinking and reflecting and praying over in these times. And I will be darned if whenever, whatever is happening in the world at a given moment, there is, there seems to be, at least in my experience with this podcast, a grace of the readings to really have something to say to the present moment, which I find absolutely remarkable. And so, um, you will hear very little about my opinions or thoughts today. What I want to do is turn to the Holy Word of God and hear what the scriptures and what the Holy Spirit has to say. What it said thousands of years ago, but how it speaks into this present moment. Um, quite frankly, I don't know what I would do if we hosted the kind of podcast where we just talked about things and told you what we thought because Um, I don't know how to do that entirely, but I do know how to try to at least take a step back and tell you what the scriptures think about things. And all that being said, I want to talk about the scriptures today uh, for this coming Sunday, which is the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord. But I think I would be remiss not to simply point out 
Um, and I, I actually offer this without commentary. You're welcome to do what you will with it. Uh, but I'd be remiss to not note what the first reading from the Mass today, so this is Thursday, the Thursday after Epiphany, what the first reading says. And it's a reading from 1 John uh, chapter 4, verse 19 through uh, chapter 5, verse 4. And it begins by saying this. This is St. John, of course, saying, Beloved, we love God because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For whoever does not love a brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And it goes on from there. But uh, I opened the lectionary, of course, this morning, and I was a little bit stunned to see that in God's providence, that is literally the first reading for this particular day in history. So... Um, I offer that without comment, and I offer it for your own spiritual reflection. Uh, and with that being said, I think it's important to go into the readings for this coming Sunday. Uh, January 10th, the baptism of the Lord. And the first reading we have this week is coming from, of course, surprise, surprise, the book of Isaiah. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, and then 6 through 7. Our response, or uh, I should note that there are a number of options for the readings this day, there's, I believe, two options for every one of the readings. The first uh, psalm, second reading, and then the gospel. I think the gospel is just you get one shot. It's only the gospel. Um, but I'm simply choosing the first of all of the options because I think that's probably what most of you are bound to hear uh, because the first one's usually the easiest one to go to. Um, so that's the first option for Isaiah. There's another one from Isaiah 55. But we're going to be looking at Isaiah 42. Our responsorial psalm is from Psalm 29. Verses 1 to 2, 3 to 4, 3, and then 9 to 10 with the response coming from 11b. Uh, you might also hear a response from, or the um, response royal psalm from Isaiah 12. But again, we're not going to talk about that one today. Uh, our second reading is from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, verses 34 through 38. You also might hear a reading from 1 John, which, uh, again, I will not talk about today. And then the gospel, which, again, is the only option, which is kind of nice, is from Mark, chapter 1, verses 7 through 11, the famous scene of Jesus' baptism. So, Isaiah, we have talked uh, so much over the last... Um, how many years that we've been doing this podcast about the great book of Isaiah. Now, where we pick it up in Isaiah uh, is in what's known as the second half of the book. So sometimes Isaiah is split into three parts, kind of first Isaiah, second Isaiah, and third Isaiah, which is uh, a valid way to look at it. But there's also sort of in a bigger sense, two big parts. It's, it's kind of two halves. There's the bad news, so to speak. So these warnings from chapter 1 through 39 of all the terrible things that Israel has done, all of the sin, all of the idolatry, and all of the very real consequences all that stuff will bring. And then in chapter 40, uh, 40 rather, through the end of the book, you have what is commonly called the book of comfort or the book of consolation. And it's called that because, as we've talked about on this podcast, Isaiah 40 begins, comfort, comfort, Say to your people, Israel, I want, I want to bring you comfort. I want to bring you consolation in the midst of your sin and your punishment and really the chaos that is reigning. So in the middle of that, right after that, shortly after that, we get one of the reasons for the comfort, one of the reasons for the consolation that God is offering to Israel, which is uh, what are called the four servant songs. So here in chapter 42, where we have our first reading, we have the first or what are, uh, of what are called the four servant songs of Isaiah. 
and the servant songs um, are speaking about this individual who the Christian tradition obviously understands to be the Messiah, to be Jesus, of course. And they were always seen sort of in a, messi- a messianic way. It's looking forward to this, this figure who would finally do and be for Israel what Israel was always meant to be. And in another level, so there, there's an individual that's being spoken about here, but in a very real sense, this individual represents Israel in its ideal form. This individual embodies what Israel was always supposed to be, which is the light to the world and the, you know, the, the, the priest, um, the elder brother of all the nations and all these things, which, of course, the Christian tradition knows that Jesus was or is rather. He's, he's still he's still there. Um, so I want to read. Uh, and again, it's um, remarkable sometimes in the providence of God the way that timing works. And um, because it's so striking to me, I hesitate to even offer much comment on this, but I I want you to hear what the first reading begins to say. It says this, uh, and this is in chapter 42, I'm sorry, verse 1. And I'm actually going to read it from uh, a different translation than what you're going to be hearing. So um, my translation says this, Here is my servant, this is God presenting him to Israel, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout. He will not cry out. He will not raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. In his law the islands put their hope. And this is what our reading skips, but I'm going to read it anyway. This is verse five. It says, "This is what the Lord. This is what the. This is what God, the Lord, says. He who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out all the earth and all that comes from it, who gave breath to its people and life to those who walk on it." I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you and I will make you a covenant for the people to be a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free the captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So there's a great deal of juxtapositions that Isaiah is giving us here. Light from darkness, calm from chaos. Um, the first couple lines, again, I, 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 with very little commentary, I feel like adding on this, it's hard to read those first lines outside of the events of yesterday, of course, that we saw at the U.S. Capitol of, of a lot of chaos. And we, of course, can't read that in isolation from the chaos and violence and anger and all of who we've been seeing um, throughout the summer and maybe even before that. But here you have God speaking of his chosen one, who, again, we know is Jesus. We know 2020. We have hindsight. And he's saying he's going to have my spirit. And what is he going to do with God's spirit? He will bring justice to the nations, to the peoples, not just in a spiritual sense, but in a a giant, all-encompassing sense. This includes the law. This includes leaders. This includes civil society. All of these things. How is he going to do it? By not, sh- not rather, by crying out, not by shouting, not by yelling, making his voice heard in the streets, which I think is fascinating in looking at the juxtaposition of what we've seen, again, in the last day, of course, but even prior to that. And what um, the only thing I will say about this is, is this. The duty of the Christian, 
The duty of the follower of Jesus Christ is to look at the world and to look at the events of the world and look at the circumstances, regardless of what they are, and to ask the question, where is God working in this? Where is God operative in this moment? And so we look at the chaos that is happening in our country. And again, not just what happened yesterday at the Capitol, but the hatred, the um, the vile words, the disdain that we have for each other as people, as citizens, as fellow countrymen and women in this country, not to mention those of us who are Christians, those of us who believe and live and profess the Catholic faith. And so we look at the chaos that is our world in a lot of ways, and we say, okay, well, where is God? And I'm reminded of that story from Elijah, right? When Elijah, remember, is is taken out into the wilderness by God, and he stays in the cave, and he sees the earthquake, and then there's the fire, and there's the strong wind, and he says, no, I don't see the Lord in any of those things. But then there's the still, small voice, and he says, yes, there is where the voice of the Lord is. The voice of the Lord speaking in the still, small voice always exists in the midst of chaos. It's always there in the midst of a world that seems completely out of control. And and what Isaiah is saying to a community of people in Israel who are receiving these prophecies in a state of chaos, in a state of national upheaval, in a state of a nation that is Israel, who many of whom hate each other, and it's brother against brother and father against son, and we know the history of Israel from the Old Testament, and looking forward to saying God will bring peace and calm out of the chaos, and then he will establish justice. He will hold us by the hand because he formed us as a covenant of his people to be a light to all the nations. Now, it's Jesus who will do that, but the beauty of the Christian faith is that we are aligned with Jesus. We are part of Jesus. We are in Christ, en Christo, as Paul says. We are in Christ, which means we have access for our eyes be us blind to be opened to those of us who feel imprisoned either by our own anger or hatred or sin or whatever it is to be set free from our confinement from those who feel like we're living in a bit of a dungeon to be brought out into the light I mean, we've had a tumultuous year i mean that that is so cliche and old hat to say something like it's been a hard year yeah we all know it's been a hard year there's been a pandemic and shutdowns and and politics and strife and riots and fires and the capital and all the stuff. We've been living in a certain sense in a kind of a spiritual dungeon. And so the question of the Christian is, where do we find him? Where do we find the still small voice? And I'll tell you what, again, at the risk of making this about me, which I have no interest in doing, um, I woke up, you know, I, I follow the news too closely. I'm, all, I'm the one who's always, you know, constantly, I'm sure many of us, refreshing our, our phones, refreshing our social media feeds. You know, what else did they say? What's new that's happening? What happened in the last, you know, five minutes that I didn't check my phone? And just, we're all being inundated. I was at the grocery store for Pete's sake yesterday, waiting to, to pick my son up from soccer training. And, um, I almost witnessed this fight among people just standing in line at the grocery store because, you know, this guy was looking for something else and his son, being a gentleman, let the old lady behind him go first and the dad got super mad and he's like, what are you doing cutting my son off in line? And I was like, oh my gosh, everyone's losing their minds. Even at Vitamin Cottage, everyone's losing their minds because we're also inundated by the anger and by the vile and, and chaos. And so this morning, I made a point 
I turned off the talk radio in my car, I turned off the news, and I turned on K-Love. And you can make fun of me for K-Love if you want to, but it was nice. And I listened to K-Love, and I don't care if you make fun of me. I listened to some praise and worship. And I turned off the podcasts I usually listen to on my morning walk this morning. And I listened to Father Mike Schmitz. Father Mike Schmitz, uh, a good friend of mine, a good friend of the Aquinas Institute, he started a new podcast where he's going through the entirety of the Bible every single day on a podcast. It's called The Bible in a Year. Um, and it's beautiful. And I'm like, I'm going to check out what Father Mike has to say today. Uh, it's the number one podcast in the country, I might add, above like of any category, number one across the board, which praise be to God, there's something that that says about our culture and our society and what it is that we deep down really want. But even on this walk this morning, I, I was soaked in the little open space near my house in this beauty of nature. John Paul II had this great line. He said, our very contact with nature has a deep restorative power. And I realized I just need to turn off the news for a minute. And I heard these birds singing in a way that I'd never heard birds singing before. And it almost brought me to tears because I'm like, okay, the world is in chaos, but there's still beauty. God is still operative here. There's still peace. And maybe he's speaking to me in this voice. So maybe I'll turn off the news and I'll turn on Caleb. And I can't tell you what a difference it made just in my morning to do that. And that's what Jesus does. This is what Paul, this is what the Bible encourages us to do. Focus on those things that are good, that are true, that are beautiful. Because those things are where we will find that still, small voice of God that is rarely in the shouting and the chaos, but it's always there in the midst of it. Which I think is a great segue into Psalm 29. In Psalm 29, um, the thing that I was picking up as I was reading through Psalm 29 this morning was all of the references back to Genesis. And it, I'll read to you the, the part that kind of struck me, and then I, I want to point something out about it. So the, the response that we get is, the Lord will bless his people with peace. <laughs> isn't, isn't it amazing in the providence of God? Again, as in a week where there is such tumult in our country, the readings are about the God of peace, the God who doesn't yell or shout or cry out in the streets, but the God who brings peace. But listen to what the, the psalm actually says in verse 1. Give to the Lord, you sons of God. Give to the Lord glory and praise. Give to the Lord glory. Do his name. Adore the Lord in holy attire. So this is makes sense in the psalms. We should worship God. We should pray to him. But it says, the Lord, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Lord, over the vast waters. The voice of the Lord is mighty. The voice of the Lord is majestic. And then the final stanza, the glory of the Lord thunders in his temple and all say glory. The Lord is enthroned above the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. And I was reading this and you can, you can see, you know, the, the typical, you know, worship the Lord, give him glory. A lot of Psalms say that. And then you see this line about the voice of the Lord is over the waters. And my first thought was, you know, the majestic waters of a beautiful lake or, you know, an ocean sunset. And like, there's beauty and there's beautiful things and this is where God is. But I don't actually think that's what the psalm is referring to. I think it's referring to two other things. I mean, that, that's obviously there. But the thing that I think is most striking and would have been most striking to the original readers of this psalm is the voice of the Lord being over the waters. This is a reference, of course, to Genesis chapter 1 and the story of creation when God's spirit hovers over the face of the waters. And of course, in Israelite culture and in much of the ancient Near East, water wasn't seen as tranquil, beautiful, you know, a place where we take a vacation. It's seen as chaos and terrifying and you don't know what's in there and something might eat you and most people didn't know how to swim. And, you know, this is not a tranquility scene. This is a scene that is reminiscent of the chaos, the watery chaos 
that creation exists as in the first lines of Genesis when the word of God brings peace out of the chaos, brings order out of the um, chaos is the, is the only word I can think of that actually summarizes this. God's word brings order. God's word brings peace out of chaos. And then the other thing that I'm seeing is, of course, probably within this culture, um, the, the Assyrian nation uh, and the, um, actually not even just the Assyrians, but in the northern empire of Israel, in the northern part of the kingdom, there was great worship. There's a worship cult around a god named Baal, B-A apostrophe A-L, Baal. You'll see that term all over the Old Testament, which is sometimes can just mean Lord, and it's kind of a shorthand for pagan gods. But there was a specific Baal that exists, again, in the time of Elijah, which my mind keeps going back to Elijah. And this god Baal um, was understood to sort of take uh, his home on Mount Carmel, which maybe some of you have been to the the Middle East. Um, This Mount Carmel is very lush and beautiful and fertile on one side where the storms from the Mediterranean come and slam into it and bring lots of moisture. But then beyond it, there is dry, arid lifelessness. And so many of the pagan civilizations believed that the god of Baal who dwelt on Mount Carmel was the one in charge of the rain, of the thunder, of fertility, of bringing life. And this psalm is saying, no, it's the Lord. Because Baal brings chaos, the gods of the nations, the idols that the rest of the world wants us to follow and bow down to. They bring fear and they bring chaos and they bring anger. The Lord, who is not just over the Baals, who is not just over Mount Carmel, but who is over all of the waters of creation itself, brings peace. And if you don't see that peace in your world, if you look at the world and say, yeah, I don't see it, I don't feel it. I can't find it, then be like Elijah and maybe turn everything off for a little bit and go into prayer and ask God to show it to you because God doesn't speak in the chaos. He speaks in the peace. And the challenge of Christians is to find the peace of the Lord in the midst of the chaos. Again, this is what made Christianity work. This is what allowed the Christian faith to evangelize the ancient world. That Christians weren't afraid of anything. Christians weren't troubled by the chaos that Rome brought or the violence that the Caesars would have done to them. They were fearless. I'm reminded of, you know, one of my my heroes and one of my patrons, St. John Paul II, who, you know, if there was one thing that John Paul II repeated more than anything else in his pontificate, it was the words, be not afraid, do not have fear, have no fear. This is a man who watched his parents and his family be killed under a brutal Nazi and then communist regime and watched suffering. And if there's anybody in the world who had reason to be angry and fearful, it was that guy. But that's not the message that we're left from him. This is where saints come from. This is where Christianity is meant to be the light to the world for people to look and be like, you have something different. You are operating at a level that's different than mine. And then the psalm goes on, of course, and says, the glory of God thunders. That's, of course, would evoke people's minds to these ba- this Baal God. And in his temple, all say glory. If 
Genesis already has us thinking about, uh, I'm sorry, if the psalm already has us thinking about Genesis, then when there's a reference to his temple, I don't think it simply is referring to the building that existed on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. I think it's referring to the temple that is the whole of the earth, which Genesis tells us was what creation was meant to be. The Lord is enthroned above the flood, all right? Taking us back to Noah. This is a psalm that is so thickly drenched in the Genesis narrative that it's, it's profound. And the reason that that's important is that the Genesis narrative exists to help human beings answer the question, where did we come from? Why is the world such a mess? And how can we possibly believe in a God of love and goodness of, and order when the world looks like it does? And Genesis helps to give us the answers, as does the psalm. Which takes us to the second reading, which is from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10. And this is from... I think it's safe to say, maybe my favorite section of Acts of the Apostles. Chapter 10 is actually the turning point of the entire book of Acts. And there's this amazing moment where um, Paul, I'm sorry, not Paul, Peter, Peter is in a place called Joppa. And he was staying with this guy named Simon. He was healing people. He um, was doing all these wonderful things. And he was staying with this guy. And I remember he was staying at this guy named Simon's house and he was taking a nap up on the roof and he has this vision uh, sometimes we call it the pigs in a blanket vision, right? He has this vision of all these animals descending on a sheet in from the sky. And the voice from the sky, from the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And presumably it's all these animals that were considered unclean by the Jewish law. And now Peter's being told to eat these animals that the Old Testament had prescribed as being unclean and we couldn't eat those things. And Peter's world is thrown into a bit of a tailspin. He's wondering what on earth is going on here. As this is happening, he receives a message. Down below, there are some messengers from a guy named Cornelius, who was a big, important Roman military official in a place called Caesarea. And Cornelius, who was a lover of God, he wasn't a Christian, but he was someone who was at least intrigued and um, curious about who God was, is that he received in a message in a dream himself that he should send some guys to go to this place called Joppa and get a guy named Peter and bring him back because he has a message for him. So Peter wakes up from this weird dream vision. There's some guys who want him to come with him. He's like, all right, that's weird, but I, I guess I'll go. He goes up to, to Caesarea to the place where all of these Gentiles, these non-Jews, the other nations are gathered and they want to hear the gospel. And they're like, tell us what you got. And it's beautiful. In, the, in chapter 10, he launches, this is the very beginning of it, he launches into a presentation of the gospel. And he begins by saying to those who are gathered, which is the outsiders, the goim, the Gentiles, the nations, in the house of this guy named Cornelius, who is literally a, an official of the Roman military. These are precisely the people who don't like the early Christians. They are putting them to death. They are threatened. This is not a safe place for Peter to be. It's certainly not a safe place for Peter to be spreading this message that he's about to spread. But he looks out and he says, look, in truth, I see now by looking into your faces. It doesn't say that, but we can deduce it. I see by looking at you that God shows no partiality. Rather, in every nation, whoever fears him and acts uprightly is acceptable to him. Not, and that's not to be mistaken as, as long as you're nice people, you're, everybody's fine. No, it's saying, if you have the disposition toward truth, toward what is real, toward seeking after the God who every single human being knows in the depths of their hearts exists, then God wants you. 
He wants you to come in. He's going to swing the door wide open to you. And so Peter begins proclaiming the gospel. It says, there is this Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you what he did. Let me tell you what he said. Let me tell you what ultimately happened to him and how the evil one wanted him and he was killed, but he couldn't be kept down. And we, we end this reading kind of midway through Peter's preaching. But if you read on, what happens is that as Peter continues preaching about what happened to Jesus, the Holy Spirit lets loose and it descends on all of these Gentiles, the non-Jews, non-Israelites who are gathered in this place and they literally experience another Pentecost event where they begin speaking in tongues, tongues of fire rest on them. Pentecost happens again and Peter recognizes, holy cow, not only does God show no partiality, he has already brought these people into the household of God. And Peter's response is, oh, geez, they've already received the Holy Spirit. We better hurry up and baptize them because we got to go and we have to formalize it because now I see that my job as Pope is to find where God is moving and keep up. How does this fit into the, the scheme of chaos? Well, in a certain sense, there's a kind of chaos to the idea of going not only to the home of the person who should be your enemy, is perceived as your enemy, but the one who can kill you. The people who are literally, in a lot of ways by Israel, seen as the chaos, the other nations, the outsiders, the those people out there. It was not self-evident in the early days of the church that the gospel was for the Gentiles as well. The idea was this is the final stage of fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And those of us who are Jews now have access to the Messiah. Thank goodness, that's awesome. Nobody was giving a second thought to the idea that this was actually a message for the whole world because the world was chaos. They are crazy out there. And I don't know if we are called to love them. Maybe we can keep put up with them. But I don't know about being our brothers and our sisters. I shared with you that line from the reading from this morning about how can you love the God who you do not see when you do not love the brother whom you do see. The understanding in ancient Judaism, you know, to the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my brother? That had to do with other Israelites. It had to do with our people and we should treat each other this way. It didn't really have to do with people on the outside of that family. A brother was someone already in the family. I believe that the New Testament recasts that meaning and the thrust of the gospel from Acts of the Apostles on begins to show that, oh, we were short-sighted and we had limited who we thought our neighbor and who we thought our brother and sister are. We thought that that was kind of uncharted territory. Now we see that God's voice, that his movement, his spirit, his ruah is over the face even of them. And so in a certain sense, in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 10, the Gentiles are like the watery chaos, in a certain sense, of Genesis. And God's voice, his spirit, is descending upon them, which is a really beautiful image. And Peter receives a lot of heat for what he does. Other apostles, other people down in Jerusalem, other Christian leaders are upset that he had the gall to go to those people and let them into the family. Wait a second. You can't just go and invite anybody you want into the family of God. And Peter says, I didn't invite anybody I wanted. I saw where God was moving and I had to look for it. And I had to listen to the voice because it wasn't loud and obnoxious. It was quiet and it led me by the hand as the messengers of Cornelius led him up to Caesarea. And then I saw what God was up to. But it took courage to see it, which takes us, of course, to the gospel, which is a very short one this week. 
And it's the scene of Jesus's baptism. So we have John the Baptist, who is the messenger, whose job it was, the voice, the herald, whose job it was to prepare the way for the servant who was foretold in the book of Isaiah. And John is out there. He's in the wilderness. He knows what he's doing, but he also knows that he is not the Messiah. He knows that he is not the one who is coming. He knows his job is for the message to not be about him. John, gosh, John is such an icon and such an emblem for what it means to be a Christian, but also a follower of Jesus. Because John's whole career, John's whole ethos is not me, him. To say, stop looking at me. Stop focusing on me. Stop thinking that I am the one. I am not. My job is to be a signpost and to point over there at that one. One is coming who is mightier than I. I'm not even worthy to loosen the thongs of his sandals. So stop giving me all the attention. My job, if I am to receive attention, is to point you in the direction of the one who is to come. He says, I baptized you with water, mere water. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what I don't know if John knew or not is that what Jesus was going to do, what the messenger, what the servant of Isaiah was going to do was not only baptize us with the Holy Spirit, but he was going to use water. He was going to take the stuff of the earth, of creation, of the world, the thing that for many Israelites actually represents chaos, the waters, and he was going to infuse it with his spirit, not merely hover over it as the spirit does in Genesis. There's a profound imagery that we're seeing here. In Genesis, God's spirit hovers over the waters. In John, or in the Gospels rather, Jesus God enters into the waters. He goes in. He is immersed. He is doused. He goes deep into the water to do what? To transform the water to bring the Holy Spirit into the water, not just near it. And this is a profound moment, right? And so it says it happened in these days that Jesus came from Nazareth. He was baptized in the, in the Jordan by John. And upon coming out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open. And the word that's used here in the Gospel of Mark, and it's only used in Mark, and it's one of the only times it's used. To my knowledge, there's only two times this word is used. It's the word schizo. The heavens were schizoed open. It doesn't just merely say that the heavens opened. It says they were ripped. They were torn. They were shredded. Schizo. It's where we get schizophrenic or schism. It's a violent, chaotic word. And I love the image. And this is what's been sitting kind of in my mind all day. That from an image of chaos, ripping, shredding, tearing, the spirit actually emerges. The heavens are schizoed open and the spirit in the form of a dove, something quiet, something peaceful, actually emerges out of the chaos. I'm moved by it in a way that I, you know, I've read this a million times. I've never really thought of it that way, that we look to the chaos. We don't look to the chaos, but we look at the chaos because sometimes it's unavoidable. And if we know... If our hearts are disposed, I, I think, I hope, and if God so graces us, then we can see his peace, hear his voice. And then, of course, the voice does come from the heavens that have just been shredded, been ripped, and says, you are my beloved son. 
with you I am well pleased, which is the formula from the Psalms that is given for ordaining kings, that a father would speak over his son when he was placing the crown of kingship on his head. This is Jesus's coronation, and his coronation comes in the midst of chaos, in a place that's kind of unexpected, humanity, that is at the hands of a man who is constantly saying, it is not about me. And then Jesus goes on from there to teach, to preach, to heal, and to be rejected, to be ignored, to be forsaken, to be crucified, and then to change everything. He comes into a world of chaos. That is, this is the heart and soul of Christianity. This isn't a political commentary. This is the heart and soul of Christianity. God comes into the chaos of humanity. He becomes us. He goes into creation. He becomes creation. God becomes his creation. That's unfathomable. To redeem and sanctify his creation so that you and I can be joined to him to walk with him. So that, what? Our eyes can be opened so that we can be taken by the hand and released from our little dungeons of our insular worlds and our lives of fear and anger and foreboding and chaos. So much of the message of the Bible in the biggest possible sense is the world is a mess. How do we find God? This is the answer. This is the antidote to our world. The question I think for all of us is, do we want to find him? Do we want to hear him? Sometimes, It's a lot more cathartic to hear the loud voices. It's a lot more cathartic to shout, to hear the chaos, to give ourselves to it. Because there's something about chaos that makes sense to us. Because that's the state of our world. That's the state of our brokenness. That's what our brokenness does to us. It makes us chaotic, both internally and externally. And it actually takes a great deal of courage to say, no, I will forsake the old humanity of chaos. And I will seek after the Lord who speaks to me in the quiet, in the peace, in goodness, truth, and beauty, and in the still small voice. So that's what I got this week, you guys. Um, Thanks for listening. In a lot of ways, you know, especially doing it myself, I don't have Father Peter to, you know, make faces at me or balance me. So... Um, a lot of this is, is me, uh, processing sort of externally. I'm, I'm an exterior external processor. Um, so thanks for letting me do that with you. Hopefully it's helpful. Hopefully it gives you some fruit from the mass, from the scriptures this week. Um, I'll be back with father Peter in person next week. So keep us in your prayers. Keep father Peter in your prayers. Uh, you are constantly in our prayers. Thank you so much for listening and for being a part of this community. And we will see you next week. Thanks you guys. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.